but if not. My name is Daniel. I introduced myself a couple of weeks ago. And as you may remember, in 605 BC, I was taken by the Babylonian army under Nebuchadnezzar as he came into Judah and overthrew our nation, our great city, Jerusalem. And I, along with many of my friends, were taken to Babylon, where we were integrated into Babylonian culture. They changed our names. They changed our clothes. We began to speak a new language. We began to be educated in Babylonian ways and culture. They even wanted to change our diet, but thanks be to Yahweh, God allowed us to find favor before the chief of the eunuchs and before those who managed us that we might be able to eat our food that was kosher and not eat food that was unclean, such as pork and shellfish. So we were able to maintain our diet and God has supplied and we've grown in wisdom and stature. And as we came before King Nebuchadnezzar, he was quite impressed with our knowledge and our wisdom and he gave us great positions there in his court. Then after a few years, the king had a dream that greatly disturbed him. And as he had this dream, he came to his wise men, his counselors, and the Chaldeans. And he said, I want you to interpret my dream and tell me what it means. And they said, well, tell us what it is and we'll interpret it for you. He said, no, I don't trust you or believe you. <clears throat> if you have the power to interpret my dream, then you should know what my dream is. Your God should be supplying that knowledge to you. And they said, no, king, no one has ever been able to do such a thing as that. What you ask is impossible. He said, well, if you don't share my dream and tell me what it was and what the interpretation is, I'm going to have all my counselors and advisors killed. And they were greatly afraid. And the word got back to Daniel, who was an advisor, who was a counselor as well, that all the wise men, all the counselors and all the Chaldeans would be executed if they could not share what the king's dream was and what it meant. Daniel went and prayed to the Lord and asked Yahweh God, oh God, would you give me the revelation to the king and his dream? And God heard his request and shared with Daniel the exact dream. And so when he came before Nebuchadnezzar, he not only shared the dream, but shared the interpretation as well. Nebuchadnezzar was so moved that he said, Daniel, I shall promote you to one of the heads of the land. So I was given a job where I was over uh, the strategic planning. I often was sent into other kingdoms uh, where I would set up uh, their tribute system and how we would govern from afar. So I began to travel a lot, but I also promoted my three friends. Their names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but the Babylonians called them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so I promoted them, and they worked there in greater Babylon, and life was good. We did as the prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 29, we prayed for the welfare of our city and worked for the welfare of our city, and we were blessed through it. Those words of Jeremiah were certainly true. 
But then one day as I was leaving, I heard rumors about how Nebuchadnezzar had been advised by some of the counselors to build a great statue of gold, 90 feet high, that would be a consortium of all the Babylonian gods and somehow almost looked like Nebuchadnezzar himself. I was disturbed, but I had my orders to go, and so I left. And then I heard this story of what happened. While I was gone, that statue was completed, and the edict went out that everyone was to come and to worship this statue, this idol, this, uh, so to speak, this image that somehow bore the images of all the Babylonian gods and even Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so it wasn't that you couldn't worship your own God, but that you were to worship the Babylonian God as well, and you were to give him status and respect and priority. So they placed it on the plains of Dura, 90 feet high, and every, they had musicians, and every time the music were played, you were to bow down and worship. And there was a great uh, kind of uh, a great celebration that everyone was come to uh, one day to, to worship the gods. But my friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't show up. The word got out that they weren't coming, that they weren't coming to worship. And so some of the men, some of the Babylonian advisors who were jealous of them, went before the king and said, Oh, great King Nebuchadnezzar, did you not give the order that all cultures, all men, all people, all groups must come and worship the idol, the statue, and pay homage? Yes, I did. Well, those Jews, those Hebrews, they're not doing it. That Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't obey you or your orders or worship the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar burned with fury, and he said, where are they? Bring them to me. And so they brought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to Nebuchadnezzar. And he gave them an opportunity because they had always been trusted advisors. They had been good for his kingdom. But he said to them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, let me make it abundantly clear that when my musicians play, I want you to be there on the plains of Dura, and I want you to bow to the idol before you. And if you do that, all will be well. But if not, I will tow you into the fiery furnace. And what God can protect you from my hand? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respectfully said, O king, we don't want to debate with you. We, we won't try to defend ourselves we will just tell you we shall not bow to the idol because to bow to that idol would have been breaking the first two of the Ten Commandments. To worship another God before the great Yahweh and to bow to an idol. You shall not bow to idols or graven images. That was the first two of the great commandments, the great Ten Commandments. And so we cannot, O king, but we believe that if we do, our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow 
to your idol. Wow. But even if he doesn't, but if not, today, I want us to talk about how do we stand and how do we live when the heat is on. These principles that we learn from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this great story of Daniel chapter 3. And I believe there are four principles that guide the reading of this as we look at it. The first one, and this is the theme of the whole book of Daniel, God is sovereign. He is the sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God of the universe. He is the all-powerful, all-knowing. He is sovereign. And what does it mean for God to be sovereign? Three things that we learn in this story. Number one, he's able. He can. He is always able. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. We know he is able. Number two, he's with us. He's with us. The word Emmanuel that we sometimes sing at Christmas means God with us. God is with us. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, if we put our trust and faith in him, he is always with us, whether in the storm or in the fire. And number three, God redeems. He redeems. He always redeems our suffering. He always redeems our faithfulness, either in this life or the life to come or both. God is sovereign. He is able. He is with us. God redeems. It's interesting as we look at this text, um, I'm reminded of a gentleman in our church that has gone through some trials and suffering. And just like John the Baptist, who stood uh, before King Herod, but yet lost his life, just like Stephen, who lost his life as one of the first Christian martyrs of the church, Martin Luther King Jr., and certainly many others, who chose to stand and said, but if not, we believe God will save us, but if not, we will not bow. Uh, Derek uh, was the CEO of a company that was doing pretty well. He was young. Uh, he had done very well. He had gotten a lot of education and finally got himself to this position, even at a young age, uh, to where he was the CEO of a company. And the company was doing well. And he had hired many people and made some commitments and promises to them. But then his board and those in authority began to get greedy. They began to do things that were questionable ethically. They began to not honor some of their agreements. Uh, they didn't provide some of the earnings that were promised to many of their employees. And so when Derek went and, and opposed their position and spoke out, uh, they told him that he needed to quiet down, that he had a good opportunity and a good gig, and that he needed to keep his mouth shut. He talked a few times, but with no resolve, and he decided out of his own pocket uh, to pay some of those who were not being paid what was promised. And he struggled and he prayed, but he would not bow. He would not participate in some of the things that were being done. And then one day, he was fired. He was let go with, along with many of the employees that he had brought on. And he said, it was the worst day of my life because of my 
ethical stance. Because of where I was, I was being fired and there was nothing I could do about it. Oh, yes, I would contact attorneys, but at the end of the day, there was nothing that I could do. And I had three children and a wife and a home. And I wondered how I was going to sustain all that. And it was the worst day of my life I'll never forget. It was incredibly difficult. And I was saying, God, why? I've tried to be, be faithful, but I have found myself in the fire. Have you ever been in that situation or something similar? Where you've prayed, where you've asked God, you've tried to live right, and you've tried to do right, but you find yourself in a fire. You find yourself in a situation that's not fair, one that you did not choose, and you find yourself suffering. Then this story, this message, this book, and this chapter is for you. If you would, let's look at chapter 3, beginning with the 12th verse. As we see, God is sovereign, able, and with us, and God redeems. In verse 12, and the, at this point, these are the men who have brought the indictment against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. And they said to the king, there are certain Jews who you have appointed over the fairs and providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you, and they do not serve your gods and worship. Matter of fact, that Hebrew word right there can be and worship. Uh, they don't serve your gods by worship of the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar is furious and commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? He's giving them a chance that you do not serve my gods by worshiping the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall and worship the image I've made, then everything will be fine. Everything will be well and good. But if you do not worship, and that word worship right there in the Hebrew means to bow before. To bow before in reverence. You shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He's well acquainted with their God. Daniel has interpreted dreams probably four, five, six years before this. But now his ego is at stake. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, in great respect, we will not debate. We're not going to try to defend ourselves in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able. God is able. They believe that he able. They know that he can to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand. He's going to deliver us from the fire uh, by taking us out or he's going to deliver us through death. Sometimes people die for their faith. Sometimes people die for their stance and they come into the presence of the almighty God at that moment that they die. Sometimes God delivers into the next life. And that's what Meshach, uh, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know. But then they say this in verse 18. But if not. But if not. 
Now, if you're a history buff, you're probably familiar with what transpired in 1940 in World War II. In 1940, uh, in World War II, May 25th, it's early in the war, the Nazis have pushed the Allied troops to the coast of Dunkirk, France. Most of the British military and most of the remaining French military are on that coast, nearly 400,000 troops. It's the heart of the military resistance. There are a few other nations, but primarily uh, the men there are British and French. And so the Nazi army has put them into a corner where they've surrounded them where they're on all sides and their military might is coming after them. And the only thing that they have is the ocean behind them. The military is going to come and they have, they have defense, but they are trapped. And so it is a dark day. The word gets out to Great Britain, to France, to Europe, that the heart of their allied troops are trapped and there's no way to free them. And the only question now is, will they fight and be decimated, or will they surrender? And many people wonder this. And on May 25th, the message went back to London after it was asked the question, after they had been communicating about what will you do, and three words were transmitted. Three words were given that virtually everybody in England knew what they meant. One of the British officers, uh, when told and, uh, and understood and informed what the situation was, and they're wondering will they surrender or will they fight, what will happen? He says, but if not. But if not. And London the nation knew exactly what that meant because they were pretty biblically literate at that point. They knew that that was a direct reference to Daniel chapter three when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were standing before Nebuchadnezzar and they were asking him to bow and they said, we believe that we can be delivered, but if not, the British military, the French military said, we believe that God can deliver us, but if not, we will serve, we will fight, we will not stand down. And the nation was moved by that. People broke out into prayer, and the next day, May 26th on that Sunday, was devoted to the National Day of Prayer. There were lines to get into the churches. People were praying everywhere that their sons, that their husband, that their countrymen would be delivered in this great darkness when it seemed like there were no options. Someone told Churchill, we can maybe get a few of the uh, volunteers to just send out a few boats. Maybe we can preserve, maybe we can save 10, 15, maybe even 20,000 people could be rescued. And Churchill said, yeah, put out the call. Put out the clearing call that anybody that has any kind of vessel to do it. And uh, usually the English Channel is very rough. The waters are very rough. And so you would have to have a larger boat to make that trip. But that day, on the 26th, that national day of prayer, the waters calmed. And for reasons not fully understood, the Nazis decided to wait before they attacked. Uh, many said in order to get their full air force and their uh, full bombing capacity they, that they wanted to place on, Dun on the troops at Dunkirk, they, they waited. And while they're waiting, 
Beginning on the 26th and the 27th, a fog set in, making it impossible for them to see. So the Nazis decided to wait. And as that call had gone out, as people began to pray, everyone that had anything that would float hardly took off on that 30 mile, nearly 30 mile venture across the ocean to France from England. It is estimated that somewhere between 800 and 1,000 vessels, whether they were fishing boats, canoes, uh, yachts, just regular boats, everybody that had something was getting out there and they were trying to go across that ocean in the fog to go and get some of the troops. And they were hoping maybe we can save a few. The fog and the mist persisted until after nearly all those troops, nearly 350,000 of them were rescued, the fog lifted. And then there were just a few thousand, somewhere estimated between 15 to 50,000 troops were still left and they dug in uh, to fight. But the, the mass majority, nearly 90% of the troops had been delivered. When it was thought 20,000 would have been a great victory. But if not, God provided the seas, the mist, and the call to his people who rescued the countrymen. It's a great, and it was a battle cry from that point on, the Dunkirk battle cry, the but if not. And the theme is still true for us today. When we are in trials, when we are in the fire, when we are in affliction, that we determine that we will trust God to deliver us. And we believe that he can save us. We believe that he is able. But if not, Lord, we'll still trust you. Can I tell you this? Uh, Every once in a while, someone will say this to me. You know, I tried God and it didn't work. I tried Jesus and it didn't work. I told him I got this. I got this problem. got this situation. And I said, God, I'm going to worship you if you'll do this. And then he didn't do it. It didn't work. So I'm sorry. It just doesn't work for me. You know, when I was a kid... Uh, in Louisiana, y'all probably didn't do this, but I remember for a little while, when I was second, third, fourth grade, somebody every once in a while would want you to do something. Another kid wants you to do something. Said, "Hey, if you do this, I'll be your best friend. <laughs> if you give me your candy, I'll be your best friend. If you give me your lunch money, I'll be your best friend." Well, even as a second grader, I knew they weren't going to be my best friend. We treat God like that. Hey, God, if you do this for me, I'll be your best friend. <laughs> you know, who do we think we're talking to <laughs> when we recognize who He is? And who we are and our need for him. It's not God, if you do this, I will. It's God, I believe. And I believe you can save me. I believe you'll rescue me. I believe you'll walk with me through the fire. I believe that you will protect me. But if not, I believe. I place my faith in you. We continue with our passage here in verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and he ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than it's usually heated. And he ordered some of his mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them in the ferny fires. And so they have taken them, it's actually the burning fiery fires, uh, they take them bound And they start to throw them in. But these men were bound in cloaks and their tunics and their hats and their garments. And they were thrown into this fire. Because the king's order was urgent, the furnace overheated. And the flame of the fire killed the men 
who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So you can't say, well, you know, they probably just got a little singed. Or they probably weren't in the hot part. Oh, the people who threw them in died. Verse 23, and then these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound. They fell into the pit, tied up, and then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished as he rose in haste. And he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered to the king, that's true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. <laughs> There's a prophetic word, not the son of the gods, but the son of God. Uh, see, what I believe this is, is something called a theophany. Matter of fact, I'll just go ahead and use the word a Christophany. In other words, it is a manifestation, a physical manifestation of God, a physical manifestation of Christ. Literally, I think is what happened. Uh, scholars would disagree. Some would disagree with that, but I, I feel strongly that it is. And here is the son of God that is with them, who's able, and he's Emmanuel, he's with them, and he protects them from the fire at this point. And the pagan king sees this and makes the declaration. Here is the manifestation of God. Uh, by the way, when we say God, we mean the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. The Father is eternal. Jesus came, of course, uh, in the New Testament. He'll come 2,500 years later in physical flesh. But we see throughout the Old Testament manifestations of God. And this is one of them. And it makes an impression on this pagan world. Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of what does he say now? Remember before he said, what God will save you. Now he says the, the supreme. He uses a term right here, the supreme God, the supreme Elohim. Come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. And the hair of their heads were not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now he's saying, Blessed is he, mighty is he, who has sent the angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. God is able. God has been with them. And now God has redeemed. And he set aside the king's command. And he said, he said to them, those servants, they trusted in him. They trusted in their God, the great God of the universe. And set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn from limb to limb and their houses laid in ruin, for there is no other God who is able to rescue, which, by the way, that word rescue, that's where we get our word saved, is able to save. And then verse 30, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. God is sovereign. God is able. God is with us. And God always redeems faithfulness. 
either in this life, in the life to come, or in both. I mentioned to you Derek, the young man in our church. <clears throat> Worst day of my life, I thought. That day, I'm fired with no income, house note, car notes, not prepared, three children, and my wife is not working. He said, what am I going to do? And I began to pray and say, God, why? God, I trust you, but God, help me. So some of us decided to put a business together. and We started putting it together. We quickly began to run through our savings and our retirement, and we weren't making a profit. One year, two years. Then on the third year, we finally made just a little bit, just enough to make some ends meet. The fourth year, a little better. Fifth year, a little better. Sixth year, a little better. Finally, in the seventh year, we were able to get our head above water. And we could see God had supplied our needs. He had rescued us, saved us. But for seven years, it was incredibly hard. And I look back now, and what I thought was the worst day of my life, I, I, you know what I think was one of the best days of my life? Because I've got three children who saw me suffer through that situation, who saw our family having to tighten things up. We had to pray and to believe even when we didn't know what was going to happen next. And my kids got to see that. And they get to see me on both sides. And I wouldn't change a thing. I'm so thankful God has brought me to where I am. But even more, I'm thankful for the journey where he taught me to trust him, even if I wasn't delivered. It's a great message for us. And how do we do that today? Well, I would tell us there's three things that we need to do as this relates to our lives. But if not, number one, stand strong. Stand strong with your faith. Don't be assimilated into the culture. That's what Babylon, that's what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do. That was the whole purpose of this statue, to have one unified religion, pluralist. That's fine if you want to believe in your God, but here's the one that we're all going to worship. But don't become an isolationist where you just say, I'm, I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm not going to be a part of anything. I'm just going to isolate in my house. Then the enemy is one. He wants us to impact the culture with the gospel, with the life-saving message of Jesus Christ, that he lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died, and that he offers grace and forgiveness for us to be restored to God Almighty. Number two, stand respectfully. Respectful. Notice how Daniel was respectful. Notice how Shadrach and Meshach, they shared their convictions with humility and kindness. I say that respectful because every once in a while somebody will tell me this. And it always makes me cringe when someone says, they go, Pastor, man, you should pray for me at work. Man, I'm, I'm a Christian there. And, and because I'm a Christian, everybody hates me. Everybody hates me at my office. Everybody hates me in my company. Everybody hates me in my neighborhood. And I'm thinking, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. People can be convicted. And they may not feel comfortable around you. They may say, hey, we're not going to invite him into our circle. We're not invited to parties. We're, we're left out a lot. Uh, you may not be understood. But if you're making everyone hate you, that's not being like Jesus. Look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were respected. They weren't hated. The truth be told, people were jealous because of their convictions and because of their stances and because of their success. 
but they didn't hate them for the way they acted, but the conviction they had convicted others. That's okay if people are convicted. That's respect. People can respect you and not like you, but they shouldn't hate you because you're being angry and judgmental and you're being self-righteous and you're talking down and you're belittling. That's not Jesus. That's your sin. That's your ego. We stand respectfully in kindness and humility and we stand in faith regardless of the outcome, regardless of what it costs. Hey, that doesn't mean you don't work for companies that have other values and other positions that you don't agree with. That doesn't mean you don't have friends uh, that have different stances than you uh, or maybe even different religions than you do. That doesn't mean you get away from everyone. It means that you stand in your convictions respectfully and honorably in faith. And when you're asked to do something that would cross the line of your convictions with Christ, then you say, I cannot do that. A guy named Andrew Thurston, who an Australian football league CEO for one day, they found out what church he went to and some of their convictions. And they asked him, hey, we want you to renounce your membership. We want you to renounce all of these things. He said, I cannot. Fired after one day. Sometimes God restores. Sometimes it's just tough. But I'll tell you what, he sent a message to his family, to his church, to believers, to his children that they'll never forget. So, four practical applications for us today as we conclude. As God calls us to live out the gospel. He calls us to live it out. To live out the death, burial, and resurrection. To, call, to live out the kingdom of God and his grace that we are to be light in a dark world by sharing the gospel, by living out the gospel. Number two, <clears throat> remember this. Living out our faith has a cost. If it never costs you, you have to ask yourself, how real is it? Living out our faith at some point will have a cost. Number three, God is always at work. He's all work, always working in and behind the scenes, even if you don't see it, even if you don't know it. He is at work. And lastly, God always redeems faithfulness. He always does. You may not see it or understand it right now. And you may be like Derek. It may be seven years later. It may be 14 years later. It may be in heaven. But can I tell you, God will redeem. That's the God that we know and love and serve. The God who redeems. So I want to conclude with this picture of a guy named Gustav Weggert. This was also during World War II, and he was inscripted into a shipyard to build ships for the Nazi regime. And in this particular picture, Hitler had come, uh, and it was kind of the coronation of this mighty ship that was going out. And Gustav, uh, Gustav Weggert, uh, he worked hard, and uh, he did what he was asked to do, uh, but yet he was a Christian, yet he was a man of faith. And there are some things he would not do. And one of them, he had decided he could not salute and honor Hitler. He would not do it. And he had not done it. And this picture uh, is a picture of Gustav Wigert and a group of about 1,500 other people were the crowd. Everyone else is saying, Hal Hitler. But Gustav Wigert chose to not bow. 
That's a vivid picture of what it means to stand the crowd. Some men die. Some men live. Some are rewarded. Some go unknown. But it doesn't change the fact that we must trust God and believe that he is able to believe that he is with us and to believe that he will redeem. And even if we don't see it, but if not, we will not bow and we will serve Christ Jesus, our King. Father, thank you for your goodness, for your greatness. Lord, thank you for this beautiful story of Daniel 3, of how three men who were foreigners, who had been taken hostage, who were in a hostile environment, in a hostile culture that did not know their God, nor know their values or understand them. Yet they chose to stand. They were faithful. They were obedient. They were respectful. They were kind. But when it came to the principle of whether they would bow to an idol, breaking the commandment that you had given them, they said, no. Lord, we believe that you're able to rescue us. But if not, we will not bow. We will die if that's what it means. Lord, today I pray that you would help us to die to our flesh of fear, our flesh of ego, of not fitting in, but yet also maintaining the beautiful spirit of Christ that loves, that's kind, that's encouraging, that's welcoming, that shares the hope of Jesus with a world that has little hope. May that be true of us this day. And if there's one that doesn't know you, I pray that they would come to know the hope of Jesus this day. In your name I pray, amen.